Please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 16. There are Bibles in the back. We'll be dismissing the kids in a moment. You can grab that. We'll read Scripture, and then we'll, we'll dismiss the children. So that's where we are. John 16. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, and we'll be reading John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. John 16, chapter 16, that's the large numbers, is the chapter, and verses are the smaller numbers, verse 25. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel account of one gospel. His name is Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus talking. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples have said, ah, Now, you are speaking plainly, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and he will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Okay, so children, you're dismissed with Children's Church while we jump into this passage. Um, We are at the last few words of Jesus' discourse with his 11 disciples. By now, there's 11. Judas is gone. It's Thursday night, the night of the Passover meal, and his moments away from his betrayal and arrest. He'll be crucified the following day. And here are the last words before Jesus turns his attention from the discourse he has with his disciples to the prayer, chapter 17 of John, the high priestly prayer, the real Lord's prayer, where he prays to the Father. And before that, just before that is what we capture here. Just moments before he prays to his Father, we get to listen into that. He has words of encouragement to them. He'd been saying over and over, the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. And leaving. Verse 32 of our text this morning that we read, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. He said it again. And now he says, Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Jesus already rebuked Peter back in chapter 13 at the beginning of the discourse. When he said, I'll follow you, Lord, Peter said. Wherever you go, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus looked at him and said, Really, Peter? Really? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. These men are on the verge of of great distress and, and fear. I don't even think they understand it. The confusion, the discouragement, the stress, the hurt, the trouble. 
maybe an hour from this time, maybe a few moments, Jesus will be betrayed by by Judas with a kiss, his close friend and ministry partner. He will be falsely accused by the Jewish people, his own people. He will face a false trial. He will face a fabricated conviction. He will be brutally beaten and crucified like a cursed and condemned man on a hill called Golgotha. Their king, their messiah, their hope, all their messianic hope hanging on, on a cursed tree. He has been preparing them. He's been, he's been talking to them in great detail. Since the upper room, chapter 13, back when he had his meal, in fact, John opens up 13 with these words. It was the past, before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world and going to the Father, having loved them and loved his own who were in the world, he loved them even to the other, even to the end. Frank, our, uh, our great, uh, did a great job last week, Brother Frank, who, who reminded us that they were not only going to be distressed, they, they were greatly confused. They were confused at many of the things Jesus had told them. They were feeling sorrowful also as Jesus kept telling them he was leaving, he was leaving. He said, I won't leave you as orphans. Although I won't be physically present with you, he and the Father will send the Spirit, will send the promised Holy Spirit after the cross to dwell within them. There'll be a greater intimacy There'll be a relationship with God. So don't let your hearts be troubled, he said. Trust in God. Jesus said, trust also in me. Jesus spoke of the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, and how that love would now be theirs. He spoke to them about abiding in the vine and bearing much fruit, how they need to love one another and rely upon the Advocate, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, as they are being opposed and hated by the world. Jesus spoke often also in this upper room discourse about joy. Frank said last week, the cross will be their sorrow and it will not be replaced with joy. It will become their joy. Like that of a woman, chapter 16, verse 21, in the pains of childbirth, they must go through it, but the joy on the other side makes you forget the pain. You see, God is interested in the well-being, the joy, the happiness of his people. And as they go through trials and put their trust in Christ, God puts his joy into their hearts that no one will take, no one can remove. And we noticed last week that that's connected through prayer. Because of the cross, Christ has made a prayerful access to the Father And therefore, we have to pray in Jesus' name, the purpose and will of God. And it says in chapter 16, as he closed last week, verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, that your joy may be complete. There's no other way. It's connected to prayer in Jesus' name, in the will and the purposes of God. But the disciples at this moment in this text are not there yet. There's trouble coming, distress coming. They don't have the peace of Christ as he talks about or the joy or, or the lack of troubled hearts yet. So Jesus must continue, continue in his teaching. And that's where we come to the last few words. We're going to look at it through three movements, three things they need to know because Jesus is about to be arrested and trouble will come. Number one, they are to remember that their access to the Father is through love. Access to God is through love, number one. Number two, they do make an affirmation of faith that needs strength. 
Number three, the achievement in Jesus' cry, I have overcome the world. We must remember that too. As they are ready for what lies ahead, so are we must learn too. So number one, the access through love. Jesus will say to them, I have said these things to you. I've been speaking these things to you in figures of speech. But the hour is coming. I'll no longer talk to you that way in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, the word figures of speech means obscurity, mystery, something difficult to understand. And, and it wasn't just simply the way Jesus was teaching them. I think it had a lot to do with their inability to grasp the, the mission, the nature of God, the mission of God, and their salvation. I mean, Jesus is talking about the Trinity. We've covered that before. And this was new to them. As, uh, it's not new to Scripture, but Jesus was teaching more, what we call progressive revelation. He's sharing more of the things of God. And their finite human mind, apart from the spiritual life or the, the life of the Spirit, is, is incapable of understanding divine truth. Paul said it this way, the natural person, the one who does not have the Holy Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. The word discern means judicial, it's a judicial term, scrutinized, to judge. A natural man without the Spirit of God cannot come to a God-centered conclusion, because it is the Spirit of God that brings him to that. The hour is coming, he says, I'll, I'll no longer talk in this obscurity. Uh, I will tell you plainly about the Father, the, the Father. And that hour that he's talking about is the hour when the Holy Spirit will be given. We already learned that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. John fifteen twenty six, Who will guide us into all truth. John sixteen thirteen, And that hour when the Spirit is given, they will be guided, they'll be led into all truth, and, and first and foremost is the Scripture. Jesus said, when I go, I'll send the promised Holy Spirit, and he'll call to remembrance all that I've said to you. So they're not there writing down everything that he's saying, but the Spirit of God will come, and, the, and he will reveal to them the truth of Scripture. Jesus will say in John 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And we have his word. Notice with me in this text in John 16, verse 25, he says, I will no longer speak to you, but will tell you plainly. And we just, we just, just without just jumping over that text, think what Jesus is saying. I will speak to you when the Spirit comes, and I will tell you all truth. I will speak plainly to you. That's Trinitarian language. Well, I don't want to just skip over that. When you read stuff like that, Jesus is talking about the Spirit coming. When the Spirit comes, he's going to speak, and Jesus is going to speak, because God is one. Because God is one. John Calvin writes, he reminds us, Jesus reminds us, that the design of his doctrine, his teaching, is to lead us to God, in whom true happiness lies. A few, a few years ago, maybe I don't know how long ago, it was a little while ago, we did the book of Acts. And when you open up the book of Acts, when you see after the Spirit has been given, you don't find a bunch of confused men running around not sure what to say. You don't, you don't find a group of people that were uh, 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 scared, running, confused, frightened. You, you, you find a, a men and women who are bold and clear about the gospel. 
They're clear about the mission to love people, to serve people, to share the gospel with people. That's what you find after the Spirit of God is given. People full of joy, leading others to Christ, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. That's what the hour he's talking about. Verse 26, in that day when the Spirit comes, you will ask in my name. Right? That's why we pray. If you notice, Chris Cajano, Pastor uh, Intern Chris, or I, when we pray, or Ricky, we pray in Jesus' name. We don't just do that because we just, you know, we want to just make sure everybody knows that we're Christians. We pray in the name of Jesus because that's what Jesus tells us to do. Several times, chapter 14, chapter 15, twice in chapter 16. Praying in Jesus' name is not like this, uh, you know, whacking a pinata or uh, rubbing a lamp. Again, Frank said last week, very well, he says praying in Jesus' name is, is prayers that are controlled and compelled by the character of Christ, by the will of Christ, by the purpose and the purpose uh, and the person of Christ in Jesus' name. It's just not tacking it on. And, but Jesus here now wants to clarify something. Even though we pray in Jesus' name, look what he says. Very important about our access to the Father. He says, and I do not say to you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus wants his disciples, he wants us to understand that praying in Jesus' names does not mean that we are distant from the Father, that somehow there's this, you know, we pray, we go to Jesus, we say our prayers, and then we wait. Because Jesus needs to go to the Father and ask on our behalf, and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Millions and millions of prayers around the world and when we get our answer, when he gets around to our answer, uh, somehow he will let us know what the Father says. That's not what he's saying, right? We have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, this is in complete contrast to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about the mediatorial, mediatorial role, mediator role of Christ in the plan of redemption and salvation and access to the Father. Our approach, our access, our ability to talk to God, to come have a relationship with, with God, rests firmly on, on the role of Christ, his priestly role, right? That, that work of Christ, his death on the cross, and the, the veil that was been torn, the resurrection from the grave, itself is a perpetual intercession. Understand that. It doesn't end. It does not need supplement intercession, Further supplement intercession. That's very important. First Timothy 2. There's one God. There is one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's our access. As Chris mentioned, this year is the 500-year anniversary. And he said, you're going to be hearing about it. I kind of chuckled to myself because you didn't hear about it this morning. Uh, when the monk, the priest, Martin Luther, 95, nailed the 95 theses, which was common in that day. If you come to the movie, you'll know that. Um, which was common that day, and he nailed these 95 theses to the castle church door of the castle of Wittenberg, and it sparked the Reformation. And one of the things that the Reformation gave us is a reclaiming of many truths of the gospel that has been lost. And one of the, one of the truths is not a new truth found, it's old truths that have been rediscovered. One of the things is about the priesthood of every believer. That access to the Father is for everyone who claims and knows Christ. Martin Luther denied the supremacy of the Pope and the, the infallibility of his general councils. He believed that all Christians were the priesthood. 
In fact, Martin Luther, looking at Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor, nor Greek nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He said this, There is neither priest nor layman, canon or vicar, rich or poor, Benedictine, Carthusian, Friar, Minor, Augustinian, those are different orders of monks, for it is not the question of this or that status, degree or order, since Christ is a priest, and we, his brethren, all Christians, have the power and must fulfill commandments to preach and to come before God with intercessions for one another and to sacrifice ourselves to God, end quote. That was Martin Luther. It was John Calvin, the French reformer, said this, Christ never conferred his function out of sacrificing priestly duties on the apostles, never. Nor did he ever wish it to be taken by his successors. In him, we are all priests. That's the access. Whether it's a pastor or not a pastor, we have the same access, excuse me, to God. Where do I find that in Scripture? Very simple. Not only what Jesus said right here, John 16, but 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter writing to the scattered church that are under persecution reminded them, he said to them, but you Christians, plural, are a holy, a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Access to the Father made through Christ, period. We don't pray any other way. We don't pray any other way. And how is it possible? Look at the text, verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves us so that we can go to him and ask for anything consistent with the purposes, the will, the plans of Jesus. And we know that he hears us because of Christ. The love that he's spoken about here in verse 27, the Father loves you, is is not the general kind of love that God so loved the world. There's a general love. The love he's talking about here is a particular love. A unique love, a special love that a father may have for his children. That kind of love. He loves us in a special way. You see, the hour was coming. They were going to be scattered. Jesus was going to be crucified and executed. And, And God now wants his children, us this morning, to know how much he loves his own people. Those he rescued. His unique and special love for his sheep, his people, those who were called out of darkness, those who will be hated and persecuted. How important is it to know that God loves us eternally, unshaken. We abide in him. What's really interesting about this verse, and I don't know how much I should make much of, how much I should make much of this, but let me just tell you, in verse 27, when it says the Father loves you, it is not the regular word. If you've been a Christian any amount of time, you'll have heard the word agape, agapeo. It, it means unconditional, sacrificial love. That's not the word in verse 27. Actually, the word love in verse 27 is the other word called phileo, where we get Philadelphia, two words in the Greek, brother, and, and love, the city of brotherly love. It's the word phileo. It, it's, a, it's a special, deep, familial love that God is, is telling us and showing us for his children. It doesn't deny that God is agape. I mean, he is. He's a, he, he loves us sacrificially. Jesus gave his life. There's no question about that. But what John wants us to know that here, that there's, there's this personal affection and love 
toward his children. One commentator I thought was funny, he said it this way, and I chuckled to myself, I hope, I hope you think it's funny too. True, but cute. It's nice to know God loves you, but how much more wonderful it is to know that he actually likes you. He's drawn to you. His affections go toward you. He wants to lavish you with all the benefits and blessings that his affections for you can draw, end quote. It's in the present tense. It means God's affection, familial, liking and loving you is continual. Don't, don't raise your hand. Think. Who knows you better than anyone? Who knows your struggles, your frailties, your hard-headedness, your weakness? Who knows you better than anyone like that and still loves you that way? God's the only one. God knows you better than you know yourself. God sees you coming back and back, and back over the same struggles. God sees you sticking your foot in your mouth and saying things that hurt others, and God still likes you. God still likes you. Every one of us have been created in what's called the Imago Dei, image and likeness of God. And we were created to receive, to know Unconditional love. Everyone's searching for it. It is only when you're resting and lavishing in the love that God can give you, that unconditional, I see it all, I still like you, love. Can you take on the world's hatred, opposition, the struggles, the stresses of this world? And unfortunately, many of us search, all of us at one point, have searched that kind of love in so many different ways and always come up empty. But through the gospel, it says, for the Father himself loves you. Father himself loves you. Why? Because, 27, because you, you see what it says? Because you have believed, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That's the mediatorial work of God. This does not mean, that. please, this does not mean, when Jesus says, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God, the Father's love is upon you, it does not mean that, that their love merited God's, the Father's love upon them. That somehow that love came to them because of some prior meritorious merited way in which we love Jesus. Never read that into scripture. Always remember 1 John 4, 19. We love God because he first loved us. Very important. Write it down. 1 John 4, 19. So the love that Christ showed them and us first becomes the foundation and the well of our love for Christ and our love for Christ and our faith in Christ, the result of that is the Father loves us. Augustine said it well. He said, he would not have wrought in us something he could not love. 
Something he could love, I'm sorry. He would not have wrought in us something he could love were it not that he loved ourselves before he wrought it. End quote. In other words, God loves us before the foundations of the world. Before you were born, he has set his seal, he set his love, his familiar love upon you, even knowing, even though he knows we would be sinful and rebellious and run, unable to earn his love, he has given us his grace and his love and his mercy is the gift of God. And our love for him is rooted in our faith. That's what it says, which is also a gift of grace. Because you have loved me and believed that I come from God, it's faith and love. Verse 28, I come from the Father and I've come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. You see what that verse says? That verse is the gospel. That verse is the truth of the gospel. Leon Morris, here we have the great moment of salvation. It is a twofold moment from heaven to earth and back again. Christ's heavenly origin is important, else he could not be the savior of men, but his heavenly destination is also important. For it is the witness to the Father's seal on the Son and his saving work. You see, our, our prayers, this, this access, is because we have entered into this eternal, never-ending state of love, faith, and its premise is on God's prior love, but also on Christ, his self-giving sacrifice on the cross, his coming into the world as the incarnate one who represents the Father perfectly, his leaving the world by going by way of the cross, his, his victorious going back to the Father, and preparing a place for his children. One last quote on this point anyway. I don't know how many more I got, but this is a great one. 19th century Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, said this. Listen to this, this is awesome. He says, these four facts, he breaks it down, coming and going to four facts. He says, these four facts, the dwelling, Christ dwelling in the Father, the voluntary coming to earth, the voluntary leaving earth, and again, the dwelling with the Father are the walls, I love this, are the walls of the strong fortress into which we may flee and be safe. I would say it loved. With them it stands four square to every wind that blows. Strike away one of them and it totters into ruin. And then in his sermon in the 19th century, he adds this, and I want this to be our, um, our appeal as he makes his appeal. Now listen carefully. This is for you. He says, make the whole Christ your Christ. For nothing less than the whole Christ conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, crucified, dead, and buried, ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand, is strong enough to help your infirmities. He's strong enough to help your infirmities. Vast enough to satisfy your desires. Loving enough to love you as you need, church. Or able to deliver you from your sins and to lift you to the glories of his own throne, end quote. That's our appeal today. That's our appeal today. The hour has come. Rest in the truth of God. Rest in his love. Rest in, it. Rest in his mission to save you. For that is our access. 
his disciples, verse 29. These are times I wish I could just ask some questions. Because there, there seem to be, I, I'm not, you know, what is really going on? That's the question I have. I think I know. His disciples said, ha, ha, ha. Three and a half years. Now. You're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. You come from the Father. You're here. You, you're going back. You're leaving the world. Ah. Verse 30. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Now, if you have an older NIV, it's a statement. It says, do you believe at last? If you have an ESV or NAS, it is more of a question. Do you now believe? Commentators and scholars are not quite sure whether it's a statement or a question. But either way, I I think I hear Jesus with an exasperation. Either way. So, do you now believe or, ha, you believe at last? I mean, Jesus just told him that someday in the future, I won't speak, uh, it won't be figurative speech. I'll tell you plainly, and now I'm talking about something in the future, and you guys think I just did it. I don't think Jesus is casting doubt on their, their faith. I think he affirms that. But I think Jesus is talking about their inadequacy of faith. I don't think they understood what Jesus was saying completely. I don't even think they understood what they were saying. Or we can relate to that, right? But it certainly was a step in the right direction. Notice, notice they started saying, they didn't say, we know all things. They say, you know all things. That was important. They could, you know, uh, you know all things, we don't. And, and by saying you know all things, I think it could be very much an expression of you're, you're God. We're, we're starting to see that. There have been many times in the gospel accounts, you read, you know, the other synoptic gospels, where Jesus is not around and knows what people are thinking. He knows what Nathaniel was under the tree. There are things that Jesus is showing his omniscient, that he knows all things. I think they're like, we, we see that in here. We're, we're starting to really see that. I, I, think that, I think that's part of it. I think they, they, they're starting to see that Jesus knows all things. And certainly they know that Jesus was not going around Galilee, Jerusalem, and, 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 and traveling around preaching the gospel, asking people like, you know, why don't you tell me about what you think God is? Or what, what is the purpose of life? Does anybody know? You don't see that. You see Jesus coming in and declaring the important things of life. What's life all about? What's eternal life all about? What's the worldview like? What? Jesus answered questions. He didn't ask questions. You don't need, he says. We, we, you don't need to ask any questions. That's why we believe that you came from God. And that's really the foundation of Christian faith, is that we believe that God has come to us in the person of Christ. One God, three persons, we covered that a few weeks ago. And that God is the only one who knows. And they believed and they affirmed it, but it was weak. In fact, we're going to see in a moment that their faith was weak and when persecution came, they scattered. When all heck broke loose, when the hour came, they ran. So in in my study this week, I'm thinking, you know, here we have this exaggerated proclamation, affirmation, and then we see them scared and running. It didn't take very long to think, well, that sounds like me. 
unfortunately. Romans 12.3, Paul said this. For by grace, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What a balance. I mean, Jesus told them, and he's telling us that God the Father loves them, and we can approach him. We have access through the high priest, Jesus, the way he, on the cross, the redemption, his toning death. And now the disciples, I think, are thinking highly of themselves. I think they're thinking, you know what? We really got this now. And they don't realize soon enough they're going to be running scared, like little children away, afraid. They had this over-exaggerated faith. Romans 12 tells us that God grants us faith and the measure of faith by his grace. You see, by recognizing that truth, by recognizing that the gift of God, his grace is a gift, the measure of faith is a gift, it prevents pride and encourages sober judgment. The focus is off of you and onto God. Marva Dawn, she's a writer, she wrote these very helpful words. She writes this, God's undeserving love reminds us that we are nothing except for what God does in and through and for us. Consequently, we dare not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Then we are compelled to think by what the facts warrant. On the other hand, now listen to this, on the other hand, the same grace also chose us. Each of us uniquely for special ministries within the community. Therefore, we dare not think of ourselves more highly than we ought or our service will not be as effective as it could be, end quote. So here's the takeaway. Here's our takeaway. God knows when we think, God knows when we think we know more than we do and he loves us anyway. God knows when we think we know more than we really know and gives us grace anyway. God knows when we think we know more than we really know and he doesn't abandon us. God knows when we think we know more than we really know and he lovingly works in us to mature us in our faith. All of us would like to believe where our faith is really mature. Again, Calvin writes, Do you boast as if you were full of faith? But the trial is at hand, which will disclose your emptiness. In this manner, we ought to restrain our foolish confidence when it indulges itself too freely, end quote. Does this mean their faith wasn't real? I don't think so. It means it was weak. It means their faith faith was weak and immature. And like us, we need to have sober thinking, sober-minded and walk in the measure of faith in which God gave us, and God is continually working in us, that we need to be careful, though, that we don't overemphasize the strength of our faith. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Uh, Phil Riken. Some of you heard of him. He used to be the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in um, Philly. He's now the president of Wheaton College. He wrote a great book called, I think it's free online, too. It's called Grace Transforming. He says this, when we know God's life-changing grace, we see ourselves more the way that he sees us. It's God's life-changing grace. This humbles our pride, overcomes our insecurities, 
and gives us such great hope in his infinite mercy that we are able to serve him fearlessly with everything we have. See the balance? End quote. See the balance? Disciples were, I believe, and then it comes crashing down. And the good news is that, the good news is, at the end of the day, the finality of your faith is not about your strength on your faith, but on the one in whom you have faith in. Does that make sense? It's not the measure of your faith or the strength of your faith that's most important. It is the one to whom you have faith in, and his name is Jesus, and there's no weakness in him at all. A great example in Luke 22, <laughs> Jesus tells Peter, he's praying for him. Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan demands to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus prays for us in John 17. We'll see. He says, I'm praying for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, oh, come on. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus like, nope, the rooster's going to crow. That's in Luke. And we know what happens, right? Peter runs. Peter denies him. What's interesting, though, is this over-exaggerated faith of Peter, this reality check by Jesus, and then Jesus is denied by Peter, rises from the dead, and in John, we'll get to, when we get to John 21, he confronts Peter about his denial, about his over-exaggerated faith. He, he confronts him in it, and what does he do? He doesn't kick him to the curb. He loves him. He restores him. He forgives him. He does the same thing with us. Are you comforted by Christ? Do you see that, yes, I have room to grow. My faith is weak at times, but I need the comfort of Christ. who shows up to Peter and he shows up to us, wanting to restore, to forgive, and to pour out his love upon us. The access is through love, the affirmation of faith, as weak as it is, and finally look at the achievement and victory. Now we see how fake, how, excuse me, how weak their faith really was. Look at verse 31. Do you now believe, or do you believe at last? Behold, the hour is coming, it is here. It has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. The hour is the crucifixion. The reality of their abandonment is talked about right here. And Jesus is quoting an Old Testament text. Just so you know, this is not just New Testament. Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament, which he wrote, Zechariah 13, 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 26 and Matthew 14, and both of them, at the end of the text, at the end of the the, um, chapter, it says they all fled and left Jesus alone. It's exactly what happened. Jesus is saying, hey, this, this is going to happen. So whatever faith they had, unfortunately, was inadequate to stand against persecution. But how badly his disciples, no matter how bad the, the, the abandonment was, look what Jesus says, that the Father will not abandon them. Yet, I am not alone. You're going to scatter. You're going to leave. But I'm not going to be alone. My Father is with me. This does not mean that the separation and and desolation that Jesus endured as he drank the cup of wrath for our sins on the cross was not real. 
The context of what Jesus is talking about is the immediate context. That's, that's the, the um, indicative verb that's used here. And the immediate context of his betrayal, of his arrest, of the trial, of the scourging, when none of his disciples will be there. He will endure it alone. He said, but my father will be with me. My father will be with me. Jesus is contrasting the, the, the father's faithfulness and the fickleness of, of his disciples like us. Like us. He'll take the path of suffering and crucifixion alone. And when that time comes, the last thing I think the, the apostles and disciples are feeling is what? The last thing they're feeling is, is, is great. They're feeling what? They're, they're, they're feeling discouraged. This, when, when it happens, they will feel discouraged. We know that Peter weeps. They're not having peace. They're not having joy. They're not sensing the love of God. It's more like shame and guilt. You see, the bond of following Christ is not the disciples' faithfulness. It is Jesus who will not abandon his disciples or let them become orphans. The context of this whole thing, think about this for a minute. Jesus just is telling them about love and never leaving. I will always be with you. You're leaving me and abandoning me. That's the context. How's that? How beautiful and wonderful is the love of God? Notice he, he predicts their destruction and he talks about peace in the same sentence. He loved them despite their shortcomings. If you belong to Christ by grace through faith, that's for you too. Verse 33 to close, look what it says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. So the contrast, in me, peace, in the world, tribulation. Tribulation, affliction, not just mild trouble, but trouble. In me, in the vine, in the, uh, John 15, as you abide in me, you will have trouble, you will face persecution, you will face hatred. As we know as Christians, we face all kinds of troubles, all kinds of afflictions, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of sorrows. So take heart. Jesus understands the trouble that you face in your loneliness. Jesus knows. He was deserted. He understands the trouble of betrayal. You ever been betrayed? Because he's been betrayed. He understands the trouble of hatred because he was hated. He understands the trouble of physical pain. Some of you are in physical pain because he was brutally treated. Jesus understands the trouble of being falsely accused and persecuted even understands the trouble of public humiliation and shame. We have a high priest that sympathizes with our weakness, yet without sin. Everyone in the world suffers trouble, but only those who are in him have peace. The gift of peace to abide in him, not as the world gives you. It's not about circumstances, situations. It is the peace of Christ. May I have peace. What does he mean? I've said these things. He's going back a couple of verses. It has to do with everything in the upper room in the discourse. 
His love for them, the truth about Christ, His Son. He'll not leave us as orphans, promise the Holy Spirit. He'll be leaving by the cross. He's preparing a place for us. We have access to the Father, and one day Jesus will come again and take us to be with Him where we will be with Him forever. We'll know that day that there's union between the Father and the Son, and He includes us, the people of God, in that union, we are grapes, we are in the vine, we abide in his love, we bear fruit, we, we are in Christ who lays down his life for his friends. The world will hate you, but you've been chosen out of the world and saved and to bear fruit, all these things. Rest in my peace, because everything I've said to you, listen, everything I've said to you, the world could never, ever take from you. The world could never take it from you. It's not theirs to give. It's not theirs to take away. Peace, joy, and hope is not the absence of tribulation. It is dependent upon the circumstance, not dependent on your circumstances, but on Christ and God who knows all things. It's under his sovereign control. The very last sentence. Look what it says. But take heart. Take heart. Word is bold, encourage, and cheer up. It's an imperative, by the way. If you don't know what that is, it's a command. It's not something for us to consider or advice or recommendation. Jesus says, take heart. Be of courage. Be bold. Be courageous. I have overcome the world. The world that is anti-God, anti-truth, governed by evil, rejoices over the fact that he's been crucified. I have overcome the world. And that word overcome means... This is really important. The word overcome means in the, in the, in the, it's in the um, past, excuse me, um, it is in the perfect tense. And in the Greek, perfect tense means in the Greek, an action in the past completed with implication going forward. Why is that important? He hadn't died yet. He hadn't died yet. Jesus is saying, I have already overcome the world. I don't need to wait till Sunday morning. I know what the plans of the Father are. I know the mission I am on. I know it will be completed and done. I have overcome the world. Don't need an empty tomb yet. The world thinks it cornered him, and yet it was Jesus who cornered them and lined up everything. The soldiers could be getting ready right now, getting their torches, getting their chains. As Jesus is saying, I have overcome the world. I know they're coming. I have overcome the world. The cross to the outsider looks like defeat, but to Christ, it is overcoming the world. He goes to the cross to be a conqueror while the world looks at the cross as gloom. And his last words are so comforting and confident. His perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the grave not only come, overcomes the world, sin, death, and hell, but it's the way in which we receive love, peace, joy, and hope. We will never, we, we will know the never, ever changing love of God. We will know the ever, never, ever changing love of God because Jesus overcame the world.
Our sorrow, sorrow of sin, and our eternal joy that the world cannot take away will be ours because Jesus overcame the world. We can have peace in the midst of tribulation, our sins forgiven and reconciled to God because Jesus overcome the world, overcame the world. We can have hope in the midst of confusion and turmoil because Jesus overcame the world. I am his and he is mine in the midst of confusion and turmoil because Jesus overcame the world. And in Christ, we become victorious. Sin and evil and brokenness in the world cannot and will not triumph in the end. Christ will. So take heart. The victory is the cross and the empty tomb that will take place, has taken place. Take heart. At one point, Jesus did feel the absence of the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was, had to do with his agony for sin. He made sin for us, separated from the Father. He was alone in that moment anyway, so that we will never be alone. We will never be forsaken. Peace had evaded Christ. The only one who does not deserve the lack of peace. He's the only one that deserves peace with God. It was evaded from him so that we can have eternal peace. Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want confident exuberance to face life no matter what trouble? Then then listen, run into the arms of a loving God. A God in whom you have entrusted your eternal souls. One who cares for you and holds the future in his hands. That all that takes place. He will get glory. We will get joy. And nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from his love. That's the love, joy, peace, and hope. Our confidence is in the victory of Christ. He has overcome the world. In Christ, we have troubled, free hearts. We have peace with God. We have joy knowing our sins have been forgiven. And we have hope that no matter what happens, God's in control. What do you need to trust Christ for today? What's troubling your hearts? What is robbing you from the joy? What is taking hope away from you this morning? Pin it on Christ. Take courage, I've overcome the world. Father, we thank you for your precious, precious promises. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son who has overcome Come the world. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love that's in Christ. Father, we pray today that if anyone here has not received that, that their own sinful hardening of heart would be softened so that they would run to you to find the hope, the joy, the peace, the love that can only come from you because Christ died for our sins rose from the dead, ascended to you, Father. Sins have been forgiven and you've accepted his sacrifice. We pray that as we worship, we would believe on Christ today.